0: Welcome to the Old Soul Movie Podcast, your number one spot for classic movie rewatches and breakdowns. My name is Jack Oremus, and I'm here with my sister, Emma Oremus. We decided that we wanted to make a show that reflected our love and appreciation for classic movies. And while you're here, hopefully we can share that together as an Old Soul family. We're going to be diving into these movies scene by scene and giving our modern reactions to the films that have influenced generations of people. There will be fun facts, hot takes, tears, laughter, and everything in between. And with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast. And tonight, we're going to be talking a little bit about a streetcar named Desire. Emma, how are you this very fine evening?
1: I am so excited! I can't wait to cover this one. It's really one of my favorites. I think it's one of the most <laughs> dynamic films, but dynamic stories, um, incredible play. But there are some noted differences, which we'll get into. Yeah. So I was absolutely the first time I saw this, just totally, totally blown away, and that's stayed with me for uh, what ten years now. I don't know. So I just. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into this one. And again, this is another big one. And I think I was a little nervous to cover it because I do feel so uh, strongly towards it and admire it so much. So I'm a little worried I'm going to forget something, but hopefully we covered all the big stuff.
0: (laughs) I'm sure we will. But as the old soul fam, I'm sure we'll be shocked to hear this was my first time viewing it. So I had no... Yes. I had no clue what I was getting myself into Really, when watching this movie. Yes. I know. Shocking. We have this podcast on old cinema and I had not seen this one.
1: Oh, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts then.
0: Oh, I have thoughts on thoughts. On bodies <laughs> on bodies. Like it is ridiculous how crazy this film was and how different it was from what I was expecting. Really? Um. Yeah. I, I had actually no clue what to expect going into it. So I'm very excited to cover it. And um, I think along those lines, there might need to be some warnings that we need to issue. Emma, do you want to maybe expand on that?
1: Yes. Before we begin, I wanted to make a note that we will be discussing sensitive material relating to sexual violence and suicide, among some other sorts of violence listener discretion is advised and we will be providing mental health hotline information in our description box on whatever medium you listen to this through
0: good i think very warranted to put that in there because oh my gosh this, this is one, an intense movie this is an intense movie and so when you originally slotted this for you know like a valentine's-y sort of release close to valentine's well, I was like
1: more yeah. It was more like Mardi Gras release, oh, kind okay, of like okay. New New Orleans, okay. more more like okay. that culture, but like right. you know, yeah. I don't season. know the lo- the locale with Got the it. seasonal Got it. Mardi yeah. Gras stuff. Yeah.
0: That that makes more sense because to describe this as a romance or you no. know a, a, a <laughs> nice Valentine's Day movie, I would probably not recommend that on the fourteenth, but.
1: No, this is more of a I don't know I, I as New Orleans kind of has its time to shine. I think that this is a film that uh, is very distinct and takes place there. So yeah,
0: yeah. I it thought it would be cool. a good matchup. Any anytime we get New Orleans representation, we love to see it. So uh, even though this is a crazy film and a lot of craziness goes down, you can really still tell. Uh, I think the character of the city and just sort of how the energy is because I felt like I was I felt like I was there. I felt like I was there watching it. Yeah. So um yeah, I can't wait to get into it. But Emma, where do we start? Do we start with the fact that maybe uh we have an all-star cast or maybe an all-star director? What where do we start?
1: Even backtracking even more, I think it's extremely important to recognize that this is adapted from Tennessee Williams Pulitzer Prize winning 1947 play of the same name. Uh, Extremely well-received play. And it lends itself to a very good setup for a movie, I think. That being said, the cast actually in this film mostly does align with the original Broadway cast. The only exception being Jessica Tandy was the original Blanche DuBois and Vivian Lee was... Not, but she did play Blanche, so she did have experience with that role. And um, Tennessee Williams collaborated with Oscar Saul and Elliot Kazan on the screenplay. Uh, Kazan also actually directed the Broadway stage production, so he was also familiar with this film quite a bit. And not to get into too many spoilers, I guess. But there are some very, very notable differences between the 1951 black and white film and the play production. (laughs) Most of that being attributed to complying with Hollywood's production code, which we have mentioned almost every episode, (laughs) and also uh, the Catholic Legion of Decency very much trying to block this film being made. So here's some of the kind of big differences. And not that this is huge, but in the play, the whole story takes place inside the Kowalski apartment. The movie, it takes place in their apartment, the French Quarter, the bowling alley, the pier, a bunch of different kind of New Orleans-y areas. Yes, the, the themes of this film are pretty intense sex, violence, alcohol, um a lot of recurring things that show up that are quite pivotal actually to the story. And some yeah. of those heavier things are used very prominently in this film.
0: yeah, we're definitely going to be leaning on you and your expertise, Emma, to just understand <laughs> what is going on in this movie. Uh, I even <laughs> I texted I texted you after it saying that I felt like the uh, the Michael Scott gif. You know, why don't you just explain it to me like I'm five? I felt like (laughs) I was there was a lot of confusion on my end. So uh, don't feel bad, viewers, that if you are watching this like me for the first time, probably not because I'm sure you have already. But um, if you can go back to maybe the first time you watched it or even revisit it right now, um, it has just such a different pacing and style than what you see from modern movies Mm -hmm. that uh, it is a little hard to decipher what's going on, especially with the production code, I guess the deeper general themes. I <laughs> not to say that movies now aren't deep, but I feel like this, you know, speaks on a few different levels. And, um, and yeah, it's just a crazy, crazy ride. So yeah, I'm right. a, we will be leaning on you heavily.
1: Today. Oh gosh. Hopefully I can, hopefully I can help. <laughs> um, but yeah, so other big differences on that note, uh, Blanche's husband dies of suicide after she discovers that he is gay. This is very much removed from the film, and she makes it seem like she is just, uh, I guess, resentful at him being a more effeminate or softer guy in the film.
0: Which didn't make any sense. It didn't yeah, make any sense so. driving
1: him to suicide. But I think if you're familiar with the play and you know the yeah. actual context, it, it, you know you can put two and right. two together there. Right. So I don't know. She does makes a vague statement about him revealing his sexual orientation uh, without saying it, so it's there. But you know, you gotta gotta keep a an ear out, an eye out, and place some links together. Uh, And then uh, furthermore, the rape scene is far more ambiguous in the film to the point where you might not have even understood that that's what happened.
0: I didn't know. I actually did not know. And-
1: Totally understandable.
0: I feel like unless I'm just completely oblivious, I thought that she just blacked out when he lunged at her. Or, you know, maybe that was just, like, the fight between them. And then I was waiting to see what happened. And, like, was it a dream? I don't – yeah. There were a lot of question marks for me. So, I think maybe for some people, you just automatically go there. I guess I didn't. So, yeah.
1: Other big difference was the end of the play, Stella is – distraught and she stays with Stanley and he consoles her it almost seems like they might hook up again and in the film Stella blames Stanley and then she says out loud that she's leaving him and never coming back and this was of course in compliance with the production code because it required you to punish the rapist uh, the punishment in this case being her leaving him so The reason she leaves him in the film is because it was demanded by the production code. Yes. And, (laughs) but you know what? Stay, stay with us till the very end, because I've got some thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, this was actually heavily censored, to be honest, by the production code. So much so that Elia Kazan almost walked off. And the one that they were most upset about was the production code being against the rape of Blanche. And they stated this, or Williams, Tennessee Williams stated this. The rape of Blanche by Stanley is a pivotal integral truth in the play without which the play loses its meaning, which is the ravishment of the tender and sensitive, the delicate by the savage and brutal forces of modern society. It is a poetic plea for comprehension. So this rape, wow. which, yes, it's a very serious issue in real life, but it is used for a symbolic purpose in this play and actually a very deep, deep rooted issue. Mm -hmm. so there you go and I have to say okay I have seen the play like an actual play production of this and I have seen the movie a thousand times and I love them both I think the play is stronger because of the lack of censorship to be honest it hit me a lot harder I guess when I got to see that production but this movie is still extremely impactful and I have to commend them for working around these limitations yeah i just if you do get the chance to see the play or even read the play i highly recommend it because it's a really cool exciting experience and i will say even watching this it has a lot of play-like qualities it's a a lot of confinement uh even even set wise they Mm -hmm. made the set smaller as the film continued to increase that feeling of claustrophobia and kind of stuckness and tension like a little pressure cooker and you definitely feel that you feel like you're watching something you're getting sucked in and it it does put pressure on you as an audience
0: wow this is intense like I it is so tense it almost feels like we're in a little pressure cooker ourselves within this episode (laughs) I love it but um but yeah I'm so insightful I feel like you you mentioned a few of the actors a few of the actresses maybe we can dive into the cast a little bit (laughs)
1: Absolutely. I mean, nine members of the original Broadway cast, which would be Marlon Brando, <laughs> Marlon, <laughs> Marlon, <laughs> I'm choking, <laughs> Marlon Brando, Kim Hunter, Carl Malden, Rudy Bond, Nick Dennis, Peg Hillais, Richard Garrick, Anne Deere, Edna Thomas, all repeated their roles in this film, extremely unusual for the time. And quite frankly, not really seen very often today. Vivian Lee, like I mentioned earlier, was chosen over Jessica Tandy, the Broadway Blanche, (laughs) Mm. because of her star quality. We have to keep in mind that she was already an Oscar winner. And this actually was used to their advantage while filming a bit, uh, Vivian Lee felt very initially out of the loop when she joined the cast, who had already been working together quite a bit, formed quite a strong bond, all knew each other. And Elia Kazan did kind of exploit these feelings a bit to make her feel a little bit more isolated, which is something that we've kind of seen directors do in other projects, like using the real life relationships to parallel what's going on in the art form. And, oh, this might be of interest to some of you old soul long-term listeners, but uh, the Blanche Dubois character was originally written for Miss Tallulah Bankhead, uh, and she actually ended up playing that role later on, but might be of interest. Now, this is interesting also because this is Marlon Brando's only his second movie role, and this is the film that for sure propelled him to (laughs) stardom. It also propelled T-shirts to stardom. Uh, There there were no tight-fitting T-shirts really available back then, so they had to buy one, continuously wash it to shrink it, and then like sew it back even tighter when doing fittings. So it was really tight against those (laughs) muscles. (laughs) And
0: and, oh boy, oh boy, does it look good. And I'm not going to lie, every single time he was on screen, Impossible not to look at his arms. Impossible. <laughs> Things are pythons bulging out of his T-shirt. Um, Again, fans of the old Soul Movie Pod, this Christmas when I was asking for presents, I was looking for T-shirts that made me look like Marlon Brando. I can't say that for sure I do, but I can promise you this. I did a few extra pull-ups in the last 24 <laughs> hours since I watched that movie because of <laughs> Marlon Brando and his physique in this film. So there you go. Marlon Brando. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That's all I have to say.
1: Oh, I bet a bunch of men did in 1951 when they saw this. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, this was really the start, the start of it all. And I mean, look at Marlon Brando's career. One of the best actors, if not the best of all time. Absolutely incredible. So unbelievably talented. And this is just one, one glimpse of it. But Yeah, really terrific start to one's career in the film industry, I would say. Mm -hmm. And also, something very unique about this movie is that it's the first ever jazz-oriented film score for a dramatic picture. Yeah, and the score, again, really aligned with that New Orleans culture, that sort of, I don't know, sultriness and... Again, and this, almost. Yeah, yeah. But like Southern flair. Like, <laughs> right. And this film is the really the film that kind of paved the way for other jazz-based scores in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you could look at New Orleans and see it in a few different ways. Like you could you could definitely make the argument that it's almost kind of like this dark city with all the rain and sort of the, I guess, more metaphysical aspects of it. And I feel like. A Streetcar Named Desire really taps into that well. And that that sort of maybe, yeah, shadowy side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of light and dark mimicking fantasy reality in this film. We will deep dive into those themes soon. But yeah, ultimately, this was a highly successful film when it came out, uh commercially and critically. I believe it had a 1.8 million dollar budget and then made 8 million at the North American box office so I'd say that's pretty good margins there. And uh yeah, the the censorship did not destroy this film's success. I mean, the Catholic Legion of Decency was really threatening to halt this movie's Production? release basically. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Yeah, so they were going to give it a condemned rating. And I think the production code censors made 68 script changes from the original Broadway writing of it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, and then even more cuts, I think, maybe after Catholic Legion decency had their say.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Crazy, crazy craziness. Almost 70 years ago. 70 years ago. Yeah. It'll be 70 years in uh, September.
1: Yeah, and what I think is extra wild or, I mean, it seemed like there were some compromises that I actually would have been really interested to have seen what would have happened from a kind of film history aspect if they had come to fruition. But Elia Kazan actually tried to pitch the ability to show his uncut version and the censored version. And Mm -hmm. the audience could then choose which version they would like to see. However, mourners uh, said
0: no. Yeah, and everyone would pick the uh the uncensored version anyway. Let's be real. Let's be real, right? It, well,
1: well, we'll get into Maybe. it. We'll get into Ooh. it. Mm. But yeah, ultimately, none of this did that much damage to it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, really fascinating. I would I would have been really interested to see what if it would have happened if an uncut version and a cut version were both released. I think it would have changed the trajectory of yeah. how we got to the dis- dissolution mm-hmm. of I was gonna say yeah production code
0: yeah that would have I think happened a lot faster just mm-hmm. yeah but um but yeah awesome awesome stuff and this is a really small little random thing I have to mention because it's kind of driving me crazy but Kim Hunter the actress who plays Stella yes I feel like she kind of looks like Jessica Tandy the actress that plays Blanche mm-hmm. on the in the play. And yeah. it's kind of driving me wild.
1: Definitely good casting. I mean, certainly casting directors do look at that if you're a physical appearance. Um, if you look like you could be raised and fed under the same roof growing up. Yeah. Uh, and you know what was actually kind of interesting now that you say that? There was one moment, and I'm going to forget which now, but it was kind of towards like the middle end. Um, but there was one moment where I looked at Kim Hunter and I was like, you know, she kind of does look a little like Vivian Lee, but but not- Not really. Not a ton. But like, I just, I just, there was like weird, some face that she made. And I was like, I can kind of see it. Yeah. Uh, and that was interesting to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes like, you, you can have faces that are so dissimilar, but you know, it only takes one small little- I don't know, movement maybe to see the resemblance. And so, I mean, that could just be us <laughs> connecting the dots in some type of weird way. But um, but yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying there. But Emma, <laughs> I think we also are missing out on mentioning one other big thing. Do you want to talk about, or I guess we should say big things with an S.
1: Yes. And that would be that this was uh, just massive winner at the academy awards it nominated for so many awards including best picture best director best actor best Best actress best supporting actor best supporting actress best screenplay best art direction best cinematography best costume design Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, and Best Sound Recording. And of those nominations, Vivian Lee won Best Actress, Carl Malden won Best Supporting Actor, Kim Hunter won Best Supporting Actress, uh, and Richard Day and George James Hopkins won Best Art Direction, Black and White. Now, that's I, I can't say if this is the first, but I could for sure say this is one of the first Best Picture nominees to have both of their best supporting actor and actress win. And I'm going to say it, you know what? I think it's a darn shame that Marlon Brando didn't win that year. And Now, I know that was a very tight race that year. Um, I believe Montgomery Clift was up that year, also did not win. They voted for each other. Uh, I remember
0: that. I remember us talking about that, I believe, on the Montgomery Clift actor spotlight. Uh,
1: That was a tight race, but you know what? I think...
0: You well you know you want to know why that was a tough race. It's because they were going up against the African Queen with Humphrey Bogart. Mm, so
1: yeah, yeah,
0: very very solid year I would say for the best actor category. That's a tough one. That is a good one. A Place in the Sun, <laughs> hilarious movie. There's I'm no losers there. <laughs> yeah, there, there really aren't. No <laughs> <there>. So <laughs> another great episode. If you guys want to take I I don't know trip down memory lane on the old soul movie podcast a place in the sun go listen to that it's a great one so um yeah oh my gosh we've covered the cast we've covered the accolades we've covered a little bit of the background
1: i mean this is a very very important film extremely groundbreaking maybe if not my favorite of elia kazan's works i don't know this movie is just so good um the play is so good it's just terrific so i can't wait I can't either. (laughs) And I can't wait to hear your thoughts.
0: Oh, man. Do I have some thoughts? (laughs) All right. So, do we start?
1: Uh
0: Here we go. So, our story begins as Blanche Dubois, a middle-aged high school English teacher, arrives in New Orleans. She takes a streetcar named Desire to the French Quarter, where her sister, Stella, and her husband, Stanley Kowalski, live in a dilapidated tenement apartment. Blanche claims to be on leave from her teaching job due to her nerves and wants to stay with Stella and Stanley. Blanche's demure, refined manner is a stark contrast to Stanley's crude, brutish behavior, making them mutually wary and antagonistic. Stella welcomes having her sister as a guest, but Blanche often patronizes and criticizes her.
1: Oof. All right. Well, look at this steamy intro. I feel totally transported to New Orleans. Oh yeah, with this black and white too. It's the jazz oh. music. It's perfect. <laughs> I
0: immediately, I immediately started smiling because it is such a great introduction to New Orleans. I feel like that is so authentic, even through the black and white, and even just seeing it in the black and white. I feel like. Now you get sort of caught up in the, uh, I don't know, maybe the neon signs of bourbon and the colorfulness of the jazz. But seeing it in black and white, is def- it's different, but it's just such a vibe.
1: Mm-hmm. And definitely matches with the tone of the drama that's about to unfold. Oh. And now this is probably one of my favorite fun facts about the whole movie. But the sailor she meets is played by an actor named Mickey Coon. Now, this actor, Mickey Kuhn, also played the little boy Bo Wilkes in Gone with the Wind, which, of course, Vivian Lee famously played Scarlett O'Hara in. Now, apparently, when she found this out, uh, she invited him to her dressing room, and they talked for half an hour, and then in later interviews, Mickey said that Vivian Lee was one of the nicest ladies that he'd ever met. So, really cool, and that would actually also make Mickey Kuhn the only male actor that appeared in both Gone with the Wind and A Streetcar Named Desire with Vivian Lee her two Oscar winning performances.
0: Amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> no no other word honestly.
1: It's uh yeah I think I just think that's pretty fun. And we get an immediate impression of Blanche, that she is more on the fragile side. She doesn't exactly fit into this wild and free New Orleans.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, right off the bat, I mean, for me, it just felt like Blanche was very, very anxious, very on edge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that was sort of my first impression Mm -hmm. uh, of Blanche. And then Stella, of course, I feel (laughs) like is uh, such an interesting character. Uh, But Stella... felt like was, I mean, a little bit more stable. I, I think she was kind of worried. I think that's what I felt right off the bat with Stella was just, um, obviously how much she cares about Blanche, but, uh, I don't know, just this really sort of unique dynamic between the two sisters where you have Blanche who does seem a little bit more refined right off the bat. And then Stella who I don't know, maybe she's not afraid to get a little sweaty in the quarter. I don't know how to to put it, but- She's um, a little
1: rougher around the edges for you. Yeah,
0: sure, sure. Yeah,
1: well, okay, so on that note, I think you did bring up an interesting vocab word there with like being worried about Blanche. And I kind of see, I see these traits furthermore. I mean, Blanche is, we can already tell, very self-conscious, especially about how she looks, Mm -hmm. a little materialistic. And then, in terms of Stella, what I'm getting right off the bat with her character from when I'm hearing her talk is that she is dealing with codependency. So, some codependency vibes, especially in regards to how emotional she got when she talked about being apart from Stanley. Right. Now, on that note, Blanche. When she's talking about the um, like leave of absence with her nerves and stuff, we get the first hint that Blanche is experiencing an alcohol addiction. Definitely, as an audience, watch and mark how that intake changes throughout the film. Now, codependency, which I believe Stella is experiencing, uh, is addiction adjacent. So, that's, what does that
0: mean? What does that mean?
1: It's kind of in the same family, I would say. This like. Dependency, this need, yeah,
0: slightly different, I guess. When you talk about being adjacent, or I guess,
1: I guess some people might say codependency is being addicted to like a person, a relationship. Okay. Uh,
0: so they're kind of like cousins, would you say, or
1: sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, so there's like, for example, there's Alcohol Anonymous meetings. There's also Codependency Anonymous meetings that you can attend. Okay. Uh, And those are called Coda. If you're interested. Yes. So both like a reliance. They're both kind of reliance people mm-hmm. in in my view.
0: Got it. I think it's it was just important to make that distinction.
1: <laughs> yes. But yeah, cool. Uh, yes, and uh, <laughs> just a quick note. I mean, Vivian Lee is a British woman and I got to say this is like Time number two that she's nailing the epitome of a Southern Belle (laughs) archetype role. So I'm just already off the bat very impressed with her acting in this intro.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's great. I mean, the acting all around, there's a reason why pretty much every single actor in this was at least nominated for an (laughs) Academy Award. So um, the, the performances all around are amazing. And I honestly... I mean this is kind of beside the plot but I really want to rewatch it again um just to yeah, yeah just to honestly have a clue for one but <laughs> to, uh I think be able to appreciate all the small aspects of it cuz it it really is just such a seamless transition from start to finish like when you mentioned you know noticing the small details like her alcohol consumption huge mm-hmm. note that immediately I remember from the very first drink where she's like I don't have more than one to mm. where she's at by the end of it. So mm-hmm. um, crazy stuff to watch. And it's like, it happens before you even know it. And so like Kazan, hats off. Tip of the hat.
1: Absolutely. Really quick. This is our first glimpse of Stanley in the bowling alley fight. And we <sighs> see him from very far away. And it's not even clear which one he is, in my opinion.
0: If you didn't know who Marlon Brando was. Yes, exactly.
1: Right. Which, Which in 1951, you wouldn't.
0: You right, know? right, right. right. You can just tell that it's a rowdy bunch. Yeah, definitely. Um, And that mindset of the 1950s of, I guess, boys will be boys, which ugh, ugh, I like yak in my mouth every time. Oh,
1: we'll definitely um, unfold some toxic masculinity oh. <laughs> this goes through.
0: <laughs> this is like a treasure trove of toxic masculinity. <laughs> it is an absurd amount of toxic masculinity. Just you wait, old soul fam. Do we move on?
1: Yes, I'm ready.
0: So it is revealed that Blanche and Stella's family estate, Belle Rev, was lost to creditors. Blanche, widowed at a young age after her husband's suicide, is broke and had nowhere to go except to her sister. When Stanley suspects Blanche may be hiding inheritance money, she shows him paperwork proving the estate was foreclosed on. Stanley, looking for further proof, knocks some of Blanche's private papers to the floor. Weeping, she gathers them saying there are poems from her dead husband. Stanley explains he was only looking out for his family, then announces Stella is pregnant.
1: Yikes. I mean, we get further background into that Blanche and Stella are riches to rags type of girls, and that Blanche holds a lot of resentment towards Stella. Also, I didn't write this down, but I want to say it before I forgot. Uh, their family's estate, Bel Rev. it translates to beautiful dream in French. Look at that <laughs> symbolism right there. Boom, boom! So you're, you're getting you're getting a lot of cool uh, naming here, and then the scene, oh my lord, when yeah. Blanche and Stanley meet for the first time. Now, what what are your thoughts here?
0: Okay, my thoughts, <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, what I thought going into this film was, I thought this was going to be a romance between Stanley. And Blanche, I thought that this was like the beginning of everything starting for them because I'm totally getting attraction vibes, I think, at least from Blanche. Maybe Stanley's kind of being a little tease um, with this t-shirt. And, you know, can (laughs) I just take my shirt off here a little quick? This is like, to me, textbook flirting. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not textbook. But um I don't know, for Stanley I feel like this is his bread and butter, you know, the arms, everything. The shirt, this wasn't this wasn't his first rodeo, I think with that routine. And so I am sitting here just waiting for the sparks to fly and lo and behold it goes in a completely opposite direction. Um one where he basically like hates her. And so yeah, I was very lost and confused. I was like, what just happened? Um, yeah, it was it was pretty crazy for me. What about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, I was so the first time I even actually watched this movie ever, I was in high school. It was for one of my English history combo classes. And I'll never forget before my English teacher started playing the movie, she was talking about Marlon Brando and how he just Like, has this, uh, his character has this extreme sexual energy about him. And I'll be honest, up until that point in my life in high school, I was really only familiar with Marlon Brando mostly from The Godfather. And so, when she said that, I'm picturing, you know, Don over here, like this old guy, wrinkled Don. And I was like, him? And then, uh, this scene comes on and we actually like get to meet, meet Stanley up close. And I'll never forget the girl next to me, like turns next to me and she was like, Oh my God, he's hot. (laughs) And we were just like shocked. Yeah. Yeah. So I could imagine being an audience, seeing him for the first time and totally being swooning. But this first meeting between them, uh, I like the first time I even saw it. I thought it was the most sexual tension I had ever seen in my life. Uh, Marlon Brando, just what a man! Like he's being so forward with his delivery. Just major applause, pulling that off. And
0: Eliak is on. Kazan, is Kazan again, <laughs> exactly the master of masculinity.
1: Yes, it, 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 gotta say, gotta say. And the contrast between Blanche and Stanley. It's like an explosion. They're like whatever that country song is—like fire and gasoline. Um, you know, they're, they're he's so he's so yeah, brutish, and she's so prim and Delegate. proper. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the the tension that's between them it feels sexual, and it's weird because it borders between hate and attraction through the entirety of the film, mm. and. That line is so thin and this the whole scene is the setup for one of the biggest themes and questions throughout the film in terms of what is masculinity, how do people view it, how is it perceived in society and Stanley personifies masculinity as being aggressive, animalistic and dominant. And we will look at other male characters and see how they portray masculinity. But that is, he is like the champion for that
0: toxicity. <laughs> <side>. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah that sure. Side.
1: That view. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we could call it a bunch of things, but it's different, you know, hearing it from us versus <laughs> seeing it on the screen. So, um, Yeah,
1: I mean, it's followed up by one of another favorite kind of artistic direction that I like with Mm. Stanley asking Blanche about her marriage. And it really captures how triggering that was for her. His voice gets very far away sounding. We Mm. get the carnival music and a gunshot. And so it sets up this little mystery uh, in such a beautiful and brilliant way. So we know that she has a trauma in her past, but we don't know the details and yeah, it, it put us in her head in a really, uh, impactful way.
0: Right. And it's the first time that we sort of experience this inner dialogue within Blanche's head, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
1: this is her revisiting reality also. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And Yeah. Also, I don't know if you caught this, Jack, and this is the first time I ever took notice of this line, but they mentioned going to Galatoire's for dinner, which is a very nice restaurant in New Orleans. I've never been there, but uh, I just recently watched Top Chef New Orleans, and one of the contestants was a chef there, and I learned it's very prestigious, and I'm guessing on that note, it's probably out of their price range. So that was like contextually knowing that. Now, I thought that that added to this uh, reality, fantasy, keeping up appearances, materialism.
0: Yeah, Galatoire's probably one of the best meals I've ever had ever. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I think that is just such great little authenticity to New Orleans, and to to have you know that included in it. As someone who just loves the city, I think that's. Amazing! I love that uh, attention to detail. But uh,
1: what do you think of the Napoleonic Code?
0: I think the Napoleonic Code is a bunch of doo doo. It's a bunch of caca. <laughs> I think um, I think that just gives Stanley, uh, I guess, permission to be nosy into the Dubois, I guess, assets. And so, I mean, of course, I feel like it just it always sort of favors whoever is on the uh, the bottom side of the totem pole. But, um, but yeah, I feel like the way that he goes about it is very, you know, brutish thuggish, you know, you, you kind of are attracted to him right off the bat. Cause you know, he's, he's just so good looking, but then, you know, you've watched, uh, I guess his actions and then it's like, you're so conflicted, you know, it's like you, you want to sort of like him. Uh, There are flashes of him maybe being a good person, but you don't know if it's the real him or if it's him putting on an act. So he's an enigma. Like, he is an enigma, and I don't know.
1: He's complex. I have to say, I do applaud the casting of him uh, on Broadway. That's where it, it originated. He was originally considered too young and too handsome for the role of Stanley, but I think it just further promotes how you can get sucked into someone who acts the way he does Mm -hmm. when you look that way and have that energy about you. Mm
0: -hmm. That t-shirt fitting, (laughs) that tailor.
1: (laughs) Right. And I guess uh, some interesting lines here, uh, uh, Vivian, Blanche says a line about how women's charm is 50% illusion. And now this is kind of just one flash of another main theme here of appearances. Mm -hmm. Now Stanley counters this and says, he kind of thinks it is what it is. Like a woman knows when she's hot and yeah, like reality is just reality. Mm -hmm. And Blanche Mm -hmm. here is all about the fronts. So you see that they already have a different mindset. And then also on top of that, he's going through her stuff, which honestly is definitely probably all fake. Like, you know, the rhinestone tiara, but he is, seeing it as maybe real and trying to villainize her. And again, yeah, we get this sultry jazz music anytime they're together, mimicking this tension between them, the borderline attraction, borderline hate. So yeah, very, very uh, intense. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I mean, jazz is chaos, I feel like. It's reactionary. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's what I love about how, you know, the music and the sounds come together with, Uh, everything that's happening interpersonally. I love it, but, um, but yeah, shall we continue? Mm -hmm. Okay. So next we see Blanche meeting Stanley's friend, Mitch, whose courteous manner is a contrast to Stanley's other pals. Mitch is attracted to Blanche's flirtatious charm and a romance blossoms during a poker night with his friends. Stanley explodes in a drunken rage, striking Stella and ending the game. Blanche and Stella flee upstairs to neighbor Eunice's apartment. After his anger subsides, Stanley remorsefully bellows for Stella from the courtyard below. Irresistibly drawn by her physical passion for him, she goes to Stanley, who carries her off to bed. The next morning, Blanche urges Stella to leave Stanley, calling him a subhuman animal. Stella disagrees and wants to stay.
1: Wow. Uh, The plot. Thickens or more, the characterization thickens. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, Blanche's preoccupation with her appearance is very prominent here. And uh, it's, you know, I mean, like anything, it's a little up to interpretation what the audience thinks of that. But consider this that her fake appearances are like a guard. Mm-hmm. And it begs the question to guard against what exactly? Is there something about her innermost self that is ugly to her that she's trying to hide underneath a facade?
0: <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> <I> really? <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh. Maybe. <laughs> maybe yes. Um, maybe no. I guess yeah, we'll find was, out. Just kind Big of a spoiler question. alert. Fake spoiler alert.
1: <laughs> yes. Um. And then on top of that, we get introduced to this Mitch character, who I also think is a pretty well-written character.
0: I love Mitch. Yeah. I love Mitch so much.
1: Yeah. Oh. He has a very different type of masculinity appearance-wise. No. He appears as something a little softer. And that is kind of her safety net there. Yeah. And again, we get more appearance stuff. The bulb with the lantern over it, it mimics is. Appearing it, not liking something bare or the bare truth exposed, the light exposed, any truth exposed in any capacity. So, once again, doing that. And then Stanley's masculinity, uh, we see also encompasses that behavior of control. When he shuts off the music, when he's threatened, it builds and indeed it explodes during this poker game.
0: (laughs) What do we think is. Stanley's issue would if you I don't know based on your very limited knowledge of him like really what is his issue I feel like he is just a frustrated person Um, like that's kind of obvious but like do you see anything deeper like within him as a person
1: so I think his masculinity and how he expresses it is very much aligned with a sense of power and when that power is threatened he has to act out in a violent way. Okay. So this conflict is really between him and Mitch, who's another male. He's kind of like ticked off that Mitch isn't getting back to poker. And what he does is really lash out at the women. Uh, You know, he turns, he breaks the radio. He yells at them, really. I mean, he yells for Mitch, but it's really the women who suffer here. So I would say that this is sort of a patriarchal, Sort of display that that um, fear of losing that hierarchy over okay. others, maybe especially women or fragile mm. people, which we are can sometimes feminize when we gender emotions. Um, yeah, the, not, that's not that's not accurate. This is just like, and uh, this is someone's art piece. Uh, yeah, and then we get the very uh, very okay. famous. <laughs> Stella.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was th- waiting i was waiting for it the entire time you know i mean it happens relatively quickly or relatively you know soon in the movie but um oh my gosh
1: what did you think what did you think
0: it's great you know it was, i loved it <laughs> i didn't love the circumstances behind it but you know you'll love to see marlon brando yelling with his you know torn shirt in the I don't even know if it was, I can't remember if it was raining or not, but you know, just him screaming to the heavens for Stella. And then it's like, I don't even know what I'd call it. It's like the <laughs> pardon the reference, but the song from Sarah, Jessica Parker and Hocus Pocus, uh, which calls, you know, the young children to her, oh. this, this, you know, yell is like a, a, I don't even know. It's like a beacon or something for Stella to come. And so it's like, I don't even know. He's irresistible.
1: Yeah. I mean, the humidity amps up here in more ways than one, I feel like. <laughs> oh, and in this scene, we get the first glimpse at the full circle cycle of abuse, the power and control wheel here. He hits her. She runs. He yells for her, looking all Marlon Brandoy. She mm-hmm. runs back. This is a perfect snippet of codependency and toxicity amplified. And this also highlights another just major difference between the two women. And Stella thinks that this animalistic masculinity quality of him is sexy. And Blanche thinks it is scary.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is my question. And I didn't, when Blanche is telling Stella about how Stanley is an animal, doesn't Mm -hmm. Stanley hear that? Like he hears that, doesn't he? I couldn't tell based on the edit if how remember. close he was. Like that's what I was confused on whether or not he heard that because there are some things that happen after this moment that lead mm-hmm. me to think that Stanley heard her and like changed some of his behaviors to semi gaslight Blanche.
1: Um, I can't remember exactly the proximity, but what I can say, if he did hear this conversation, he now views Blanche as a threat to undermine his power.
0: Yeah. Cause what I remember happening was Blanche, you know, talking to Stella about Stanley being an animal. Mm -hmm. And then the next few times we see Stanley, he is more dressed up. Like he's more prim and proper. If I can even say that, like he's wearing a shirt and tie, like, he is generally generally more well-groomed. Um, so I don't know if he did that deliberately to sort of act as like the antithesis of what she was saying. To, mm-hmm. I don't even know, like make it more obvious to Stella that he's not like that. It was just, I was doing like mental gymnastics if you couldn't tell by how I'm talking about it. But yeah.
1: If anything, I would... Think that that kind of change in outfits. I mean, I still think he could. He looks a little bit, you know, street ish, But oh. um, well, like you know, <laughs> common.
0: Common. Oh, I <laughs> think I'm common. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um. I. You know. I. I will say. Yeah. He does look uh, a little bit more more put together. I guess. And if anything, I would think that that's a tactic to mess with Blanche's view of things, oh. to screw with her. View of him and things like that.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought, at least. I could be wrong, but that's just one guy. You know, that's just me talking (laughs) here. So, as weeks pass into months, tension mounts between Blanche and Stanley. Blanche is hopeful about Mitch, but anxiety and alcoholism have her teetering on mental collapse while anticipating a marriage proposal. Finally, Mitch says they should be together. Meanwhile, Stanley uncovers Blanche's hidden history of mental instability, promiscuity, and being fired for sleeping with an underage student. Stanley then passes this news on to Mitch. In full knowledge, this will end Blanche's marriage prospects and leave her with no future. Stella angrily blames Stanley for the catastrophic revelation, but their fight is interrupted when Stella goes into labor. Wow. Again, um... The the relationship between Mitch and Blanche, uh, you know I'm here for it. I can't say that this is my favorite, uh, movie relationship of all time, but I do like Mitch. I like him as a big, you know, softy, uh, a nice, proud six one. What is he like? Two o seven or something? <laughs> softy, who is proud of his workouts and stuff. And I'm just so jealous that he has a gym to go to as I sit here during quarantine still, but. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, what are what are your thoughts to all this happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, Mitch is just interesting to me. He has this softness about him. You can tell he has a fear of loneliness also. Maybe a little codependency issues there mm. too. Yet yeah, at the same time, we do see some hints of the stanley in him as well. But I mean, we see the Stanley's masculine energy extending beyond him. I mean, we see the neighbor chasing his wife, right? Something like right.
0: that. Eunice, right?
1: Yeah. 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 So, so, so I mean, watch for in all the male characters here, like, is this something that men just naturally revert to, uh, just, just it's just that's a hypothetical. And uh or spoiler that's a,
0: alert. <laughs> no, just kidding. That
1: that's a rhetorical question. Uh yeah, so interesting. <laughs> I also I don't know why I love their conversation about their astrological signs that he's oh, no. a Capricorn. But you know what? He, who knows? He might be an Aries rising. You I don't that know.
0: Aries energy. <laughs> yeah. I you're an Aries. Yeah, love it. And then um <laughs> and
1: then she's a Virgo, which means they're both Earth signs, which Interesting, interesting there. Oh god. And then in return to this encounter, he hints that he knows about her sexual activity. Now, sex is another theme throughout this movie, uh, mostly being a force of someone's downfall. Yeah, like when Stanley and Stella sleep together after their fight. I mean, it keeps their toxic relationship going and it's just not gonna end pretty. We can assume that and it's revealed that blanche was promiscuous and this threatens her reputation being destroyed in her new living area so we see this as being like a a negative thing yeah and also she presents us so prim and proper but we are seeing these character traits of her sleeping around and her drinking now like okay so the drinking is kind of we can see becoming her escape from her problems Um, including her poor state of her mental health and that need to escape increases throughout the movie if you haven't caught on to that. So yeah, the drinking is her escape. Now the sleeping around is also kind of like an escape, um, like hand in hand with the alcohol. She tries to find this romantic, beautiful life, but in the end, the sex leads to her destruction. And yeah, we'll get more into that later. But also note how we do see multiple sides of alcohol. For Blanche, it's to run away from something. And for the men, it's to kind of fuel their aggression.
0: Yeah. I think that there's a lot to uh, to unpack there. And um, (laughs) I cannot stop thinking though, about one scene in particular, and that is the seduction from Blanche of the what was it, like a newspaper boy, a delivery boy, a young man? Uh, um, very awkward uh, scene, but one that I want to talk about. I mean, I kind of made a an ill humor joke that it was kind of funny. Uh, It's kind of wrong in a way. It is wrong because we don't yeah. know how young this kid is, but she's what, like a 30-something-year-old woman, and he might be what, like 15, 16? Maybe uh, I yeah, know. I
1: mean, definitely hard to tell, but again, uh for from an artistic point of right, view, right, showing right. showing this lending to her destruction, furthermore, her trying to be all seductive, and
0: yeah. it just does not look like he wanted any piece of that, and it felt a little coerced.
1: but I think you do bring up a good point because it kind of goes hand in hand with her background, and when she is on her date with mitch, um this sweet, naive fool who actually does have some masculine animalistic qualities coming out. Uh, like when he picked her up and stuff and yep. like, it seemed like he was looking for for more than just cuddles.
0: He's a gentle giant cuddles. though. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely get that.
1: We see it. He's just a little bit more obscure, but we get to learn a little bit more about her backstory and we learn the truth about her first husband. And- Not super obvious because of censorship, but her husband, you know, was gay. And it appears that she bullied him so much into this uh, lack of maybe getting sex from him uh, that it ended up in his destruction. So, yeah, we finally learn about the truth about Blanche, her, her... sexual past and we understand now why she thinks herself so ugly maybe internally and why she puts up these illusions
0: wow so i'll take a deep breath you know <laughs> in through the nose out through the mouth all right take a deep breath all right are we all good all right what am i yeah I'm up.
1: and i mean what do we think of stanley telling mitch the truth here
0: i'm uh you know i'm <sighs> I'm a little at a crossroads because do I think, you know, honesty, transparency is the best policy? Yes. But did he go about it in the right way? No. That's <laughs> I, a, I-, I, I
1: kind of like that answer. And, I, you know, I think I like this piece of, <laughs> to me, this is a great example of writing conflict intention because you see Stella wanting to look out for her sister and just end up with a nice guy, right. you know, just settle down. And then you see Stanley wanting to protect his friend and you feel that collision. So like, I like that, Tennessee. Yeah.
0: Good job, Tennessee.
1: <laughs> but also I thought it was so funny that you, you brought up the parrot joke and how they never finished the joke. Did you end up finding out the, you know what? the full joke?
0: I looked it up, but I want you to say the full parrot joke because This was something that I immediately texted Emma about. As soon as I watched it, I was like, darn, they didn't finish the parrot joke. And then you said, do you want me to tell you what it was? Well, now I would like for you to tell me what the parrot joke is.
1: All right. So this is the quote. The joke goes like this. The only way to silence the parrot was to cover its cage with a cloth so it would think that it was nighttime and go to sleep. One morning, the pastor comes by to visit the woman right after she uncovered the cage, so she had to immediately cover it again. The pastor came inside and heard the parrot say, "God damn, that was a short day."
0: <laughs> you gotta love, <laughs> you gotta love an old old joke, especially when it involves some. Uh, some birds,
1: but it's funny because I think a lot of people are like do you want to hear the rest of the joke, and I, I know. don't know if it's funny or knowing or not knowing. Like,
0: you know, <laughs> but- I actually kind of like not knowing, even though I'd, I'd give it like a five or a six out of ten, <laughs> okay joke. But I kind of like not knowing because it just it gives you endless possibilities.
1: Uh, but yeah. One of one of the best pieces of life advice that I got from one of our cousins was. Always keep a joke in your back pocket, like one that you can recite whenever, I don't know, whenever you need it. (laughs) That's
0: great life advice.
1: This this is apparently Blanche's, but (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So yeah, Uh, moving on. Oh, actually one note right before we move on. I like that the hint into Blanche's childhood background that she's always struggled with facing the difficulty of reality ever since a kid. And I, I just think that was good to show that consistency, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and the origins.
0: Yeah. Stella's in labor. Stella's in labor, everyone. Oh
1: no. And
0: <sighs> pray for that child. <laughs> Later, Mitch arrives and confronts Blanche about Stanley's claims. She initially denies everything, then breaks down confessing. She pleads for forgiveness, but Mitch hurt and humiliated roughly ends the relationship. Later that night, while Stella's labor continues, Stanley returns from the hospital to get some sleep. Blanche, dressed in a tattered old gown, pretends she is departing on a trip with an old admirer. She spins tale after tale about her fictitious future plans, and he pitilessly destroys her illusions. They engage in a struggle, after which Blanche is shown in a regressed psychotic state, implying Stanley may have raped her.
1: Well, okay, so here, if we're keeping track of the alcohol intake, her alcohol addiction is at a high, mm. uh, very much an attempt to keep this fantasy going that she will end up with Mitch maybe. She, yeah, she likes living in this fantasy to hide her true self or she she almost needs it. It's a need, not even a, a want. And oh, I also... In case you're curious, I think Vivian Lee was only like 36 ish at the time of filming. She was, yeah. Yeah, and she did have to be made up to look older. So but
0: I wasn't I, Blanche. I mean, how old was Blanche?
1: Probably, I bet character. she was supposed to be in her 40s, to be honest. Okay. okay. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm impressed because Vivian Lee is, to me, you know, still so young. Uh, and to have that. Channel someone even a few years older than her, I think, Mm. is impressive. And a a couple different line changes here. Many meetings with strangers was originally many intimacies with strangers. Actually, when I when I was first um, like writing that note, I accidentally wrote it that it was changed to intimacies with strangers, and I was like, that sounds way worse. (laughs) But no, it's meetings with strangers. Yeah. And I really thought the line of never lied in my heart is such an interesting line further lining up with this like it's not a lie if it's like if, if i want I it to be it. the truth yeah. yeah exactly so i mean it's it's such a small line but it stands out to me mm-hmm. nothing nothing goes to waste here in terms of dialogue with adding to the characterization. Part of why this is so strong, I mean, this flower seller couldn't have come at a worse time. She is very much kind of this uh, symbol for death, ghosts of her past. Uh, it makes it hard to hide from even that, this symbol, because she's just out there. Yeah, I mean, I've just, again, I've got to commend Vivian Lee on her performance. I mean, she's carrying a lot of this film single-handedly. I mean, given everyone does a really good fair share, but she has a very heavy chunk to carry. So color me impressed because she just delivers. And when Blanche is meeting with Mitch, we see Mitch fall into this sexual aggression like when he forcefully kisses her. And it's accompanied by him calling her unclean. And wow. so we see that Mitch, despite maybe appearing to be this wholesome guy, he does have that, you know, stanley esqueness about him that Stanley's representing. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that difference here in terms of sex and how it yeah. it, it really empowers men. And it's the women here that are
0: suffering yeah.
1: or not just the women, the, the people with those moon qualities like her husband.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the double standard I feel like is, uh, is present. It's just, yeah, it's, it's tough to watch. Like it's tough to watch Blanche in this state. Um, like, would you say that this is pretty much all stemming from, you know, her being, I guess, drunk, in her alcoholism or is there any other kind of mental factor playing into it? Cause that's what I didn't know. And that's what oh, con- I think confused me.
1: I, I think it's definitely both. I mean,
0: but what exactly like mentally besides being, you know, under the influence?
1: Um, yeah. So there's definitely something co-occurring going on. I mean, it's, it's hard to, I think it's hard to make a for sure diagnosis of a movie character, but yeah. I do think that, you know, there could be a personality disorder, a delusional disorder, um, and it seems to be coming from a trauma response.
0: Interesting. Which is yeah.
1: actually kind of a common thing that Tennessee Williams uh, writes into his work, this mental health failing uh, as a trauma response.
0: Interesting to have that sort of as a recurring theme. Uh yeah, I mean, I'd love to do maybe even a deep dive into Tennessee Williams. Who knows? If you guys are interested, hit us up, Old Soul Movie Podcast on Instagram, Old Soul Pod on Twitter. Uh but yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, we do see her go into this full on mental delusion. Uh, when Stanley comes back, she is completely stuck in a fantasy living out her past. And the instant we hear Stanley's voice, it's kind of shattered for us. I mean, it's a little comforting to see her like look happy in a sense, but then it's like Stanley comes back, it's over. Mm -hmm. And it does. Uh, like when she says we ought to be alone, like that fear definitely can pop up and it becomes a hunting game where it is cat and mouse. I mean, like, so this whole time we had this tension between them, which bordered between sexual and hate and that aspect of his masculinity and her fear, it leads to him raping her, uh, which is just the ultimate hurt and destruction. And it comes together in that moment, like the ultimate act of violence to assert power and control is this rape over her. Yeah. Which... Absolutely terrible. And I think it's pretty obvious if you've seen the play that that's what happens. He carries her to his bedroom after she passes out, out of just being overwhelmed. And yeah, and here it's, I'm sure it's very unclear to people.
0: Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) I mean, I think it was just unclear to me because it really looked like they were about to fight. And I thought that maybe a fight occurred. But it's, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are probably more on the nose with it than, than I am. So you probably got it right away, but
1: yeah. And I mean, it was a major issue for production to keep this ambiguous, probably their biggest issue from what it sounds like, but you know what? I I'm going to be honest here. I think they got away with quite a bit more than what I would expect. I just, you, you can tell like he's in this hunting mode and mm-hmm. then with the glass shattering and her, like, her reflection in the mirror, I, to me, I, th- I think that's like a, a all a things, all <laughs> things considering with the production code and the Catholic Legion of Decency.
0: Yeah. And there's one point in particular that stands out to me uh, during all this. And it's what I was thinking before she even said it, but just how he was acting was so mm-hmm. cruel. You know, mm-hmm. I-, I was thinking it in my head, like, this is just. Yeah so cruel like cruelty beyond anything you could imagine almost Mm -hmm. and so uh she basically calls it out out loud and it just doesn't matter it's it's really kind of like witnessing um like i don't know evil in a way yeah Uh, it's yeah it's just a it's such an emotionally intense scene i could easily see how this would um affect maybe someone that has similar triggers or Mm -hmm. maybe. I don't know, similar circumstances. So you do have to, I think, watch this with caution, just like knowing how intense it gets. But um, it's important. It's important to watch because of what you talked about. She's Blanche Dubois, you know, the white, white woods or white made of wood. She's (laughs) a purity personified. And you have like, basically just, uh, I don't even know. A Neanderthal. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. Maybe a Neanderthal would have some more redeeming qualities than Stanley. I have no clue.
1: I Um, would just circle back to Tennessee Williams' quote that we mentioned earlier. I think that pretty much sums it up. This uh, powerful, masculine, dominant, controlling aspects, traits of the world taking over something that's maybe weaker and struggling or fragile or sensitive. And that's that's what you get in that moment. So, yeah.
0: Definitely. Hard to watch, but I think uh, important. Okay, Hmm. so shall we move on?
1: Oh, yes. How does this tale end?
0: So, weeks later, during another poker game at the Kowalski apartment, Stella and Eunice are packing Blanche's belongings. Blanche, who believes she's going on a vacation, has suffered a complete mental breakdown and is being committed to a mental hospital. Blanche told Stella what happened with Stanley, but Stella disbelieves her. When a doctor and nurse arrive to remove Blanche, she resists and collapses, seized with total confusion. The doctor gently offers Blanche's arm and she goes willingly, delivering the famous line, whoever you are, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. Mitch, present at the poker game, is visibly upset. As the car drives away with Blanche, Stella takes the baby upstairs to Eunice's, ignoring Stanley's calls and vowing not to return.
1: Post- This last piece of violence, Blanche is in a total delusional state. Uh, She has retreated to her fantasy world permanently uh, for possibly a constant state of security. And you get some interesting things here, particularly with Stella choosing not to believe Blanche about the sexual assault. And I do think this directs. Uh, this directly relates to her codependency. I I think she's choosing not to believe her out of the fear of potentially losing Stanley. Mm. So, agree. That's something I see there for sure. Yeah, kind of her, her difficulties are.
0: Yeah, it's struggling. tough. It's it's really really tough, and um, I think yeah, personally, I was still confused because. <laughs> I I just yeah still didn't know really what was going on it happens a little fast so um and yeah I mean I felt like I was paying attention too which I, maybe I'm just dumb who knows oh, no, but- no no no, you, <laughs> no, no, no I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but um but uh, it it it's you know it's really hard to witness everything happening with Blanche and um it, yeah it's just a total breakdown of reality you know
1: yeah and I mean, we get the delivery of probably one of the most famous movie line, play lines, fiction lines ever, which is the, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers quote. So what does this mean? You may yeah. ask. Tell, me. Tell us Emma,
0: enlighten us.
1: <laughs> if you're just like, what? Uh, why is it so famous? Here's the thing. Blanche has always relied on this perceived perceived kindness of strangers because she has trouble in the real world. So she officially reverts to fantasy of how she perceives things. So if you were also kind of on a historical note, if you were watching this at the time it came out, mental health treatment was not what it is now. Tennessee Williams had a sister who was uh, institutionalized in a mental health hospital, and I think she was eventually lobotomized. So then as, I mean, you, you wouldn't know that necessarily as an audience, but knowing that general idea that mental hospitals were not places that treated people with dignity, respect and human rights, you can assume that that's actually what's coming for Blanche. She's not getting kindness. In the the end, she is not reliant on kindness. The reality is she's dependent on illusions, which quite frankly have oftentimes been very destructive to her. Uh, Kindness being one of them or her like, you know,
0: perceived kindness
1: being one of them. Like she thinks people are being nice and um, it's really hurting her or they're out to hurt her maybe. Yeah. Again, circling back to everything Tennessee Williams said with his the, the meaning of his scenes he wrote. Yeah. And then what does the title mean? Streetcar Named Desire. Uh It's really the desire of how she wants things and how they actually are and they're indistinguishable to her. So there you go. Cut
0: and dry. That is it. I mean, are there any other interpretations that you can- find or is that is that it
1: oh i mean i'm sure someone can come up with something i mean who knows but yeah at the end of the day she's dependent on delusions and that's what keeps her going and uh this ends into total destruction for her via via these other channels too with sex and alcohol but stella Okay, so this is, like I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest differences. The production code censors required that Stella leave this rapist for punishment. An absolute tragedy, in my opinion, because the real ending is a lot more powerful with them staying together and leading to hooking up again. And... In the play, you can directly see that it speaks to the cycle of abusive behavior continuing, aggressive masculinity thriving, and the patriarchy persisting. Now, however, that being said, I think that this ending is not the end of the world from an artistic perspective point of view.
0: I would agree with you. I wonder if we're on the same wavelength here. So this will be interesting (laughs) to see, but please inform me what you're thinking
1: now, because of the powerful scene with terrific acting earlier that we saw with Stanley's plea at the bottom of the stairs, we have seen how this power control abusive relationship cycle works And the audience then has the choice to believe if she ended up going back down the stairs with the baby anyways, which is how I choose to interpret it. Or if you are more aligned with the censored version for your own needs that she leaves this abuser, but you have the option of doing so. And in that way, It becomes a brilliant meta experience and an ironic one at that, that you can either face the rough reality of a situation or you see if you have the need to tell yourself something positive and amazing happened for your own sense of security, which is exactly what the characters in this movie go through. So you see these censors pushing this agenda and need for something fake and to hide the truth or you can see the truth of it. And I think they did a really good job and, and wow, 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 just... Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, my mind is that. <laughs> a little uh, exploded, would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, you basically went exactly where I was thinking with it. And like, again, circling back to the, I guess, earlier moment within the movie with that terrific acting of her... Being, you know, like seduced down the steps again, him picking her up. It's like the never ending cycle. And so um, you could still, I think, look at it exactly how the play intended it. So just well articulated, Emma. That was that was fantastic. Now,
1: all that being said, I don't think it would have been the end of the world if the stellar character had looked back behind her before cutting to the end credits. But, you know, still good. Still good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Class is dismissed, everyone. You may all go home. What a (laughs) crazy, crazy episode. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that um, I wanted to mention, but I think that's it. No,
1: I hope I got everything. I'm really nervous I didn't because I I really, truly respect and admire this work Mm -hmm. for everything it has to give.
0: It's so heavy. It's just such a heavy piece. And yeah, what... What was something that stood out to you? Uh, I mean, we'd love to continue the the dialogue on social media, Old Soul Movie Podcast on Instagram, Old Soul Pod on Twitter. Uh, feel free to reach out to us. Um, yeah, this was such a big one. Yeah.
1: Generally speaking, um, I know some of you have been reaching out to us on uh, our various social media and I just can't thank you enough and tell you how much we appreciate that because yeah, we just, we loved, This isn't for me, I guess. I feel like this is really to, you know, open up those thoughts and these works for people who also love them. So Mm -hmm. yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah. Great introduction. Hopefully, we made some sense. I think you more than me. No, Uh, no, no.
1: You got this. You, you got uh, this. Of
0: course, but um, especially with
1: having no prior knowledge, you like nailed it.
0: Yeah, no prior knowledge, which was just a whirlwind to say the (laughs) least, to experience. Um, But such an important film, such an important piece of cinema, 70 years old, 70, 70 years old, but still I think very relevant and pertinent to themes that exist today. You know, they may look different, but they're still there, um, I guarantee it. So, (laughs) well, that might make you feel uneasy, (laughs) but um, I think uh, it's just, it's a beautiful piece of art And I'm glad that we had the chance to chat about it, Emma. Um, Share the old soul fam with anybody who you think would love it, would want to be part of it. Um, Or, you know, (laughs) I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know what else, but, um, or someone who (sighs) needs a streetcar named desire in their (laughs) life. I don't even know what that would look like, but it's out there. So Emma, what would you like to say before we leave here?
1: Honestly, just thank you for your time. I know that was a very heavy one. Once again, we will have mental health resources available in uh, the description box uh, wherever you're listening this to, And uh, get excited for something maybe a little lighter <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> next week for our Valentine's special.
0: Oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> get ready. I'm gonna go do some, uh, some pull-ups in the meantime, maybe buy a... <laughs> a size small t-shirt or two. Um, <laughs>
1: Wash it sew <so> it together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Until next time, everybody, thank you so much again for tuning into the Old Soul Movie Podcast. We cannot wait to see you next time. And we look forward to it with all of our hearts. Until then, take care.